All right, Colossians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. And I'll just tell you up front, this is a passage that a lot of times people won't even deal with uh, because it looks like housekeeping kinds of materials. Paul comes onto the home stretch here and he starts calling out people, giving instructions. This one does this, please do this with, with this one and so on and so forth. And we might be tempted to look at this and go, well, there's, there's not really much here for us. But here's what we know about the Bible. Every single bit of it there is there for a reason. There's no accidents in the Bible. And if this is in the Scripture, it is useful for teaching and reproof and training in righteousness and so on and so forth, and we need to use it. So that being said today, uh, I do want to acknowledge that the nature of this text is different. Uh, there's no narrative here. There's no commands here with just a couple of exceptions. And so the way I want to handle this is we're just going to talk our way through it, and I'm just going to make observations as we go through it, but I am confident that the Lord is going to help us in the process. So let me pray and ask for His help, and we'll get right to it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would come and illuminate these texts to us, that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our mind, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. The first principle I want to give us here actually comes from the totality of the text, and that is this, and that is that mission is a team effort. Can you say that with me? Mission is a team effort. And the reason I want to point that out is because most of us kind of have this thinking about reaching other people for Jesus or advancing the gospel or whatever you want to call it, that it's kind of a solo sport. It's like golf. You get out there, you work on your swing, you're doing your thing, so on and so forth. And there's definitely some elements that that, that is true, but I think in the way that Paul did it and in the way that you see it throughout the Bible, it's more like basketball than golf. There may be one person out there, point guard, kind of calling the plays, but if he doesn't have the other four members of the team on the court at the time, well, that team is not going anywhere. And so as we look at what Paul does in this passage, and he points out all these different people that were a help to him, so on and so forth, it reminds us time after time after time that mission is indeed a team effort. Now, let me go ahead and pull out the first person that he talks about here. He talks about a man named Tychicus, uh, and he describes him in verses 7 and 8 as a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Now, what do we know about this brother? Well, he was one of Paul's Gentile converts that Paul took with him to Jerusalem as a representative for the Gentile churches, and he was a reliable companion and a capable leader and was sometimes even a fill-in for Titus and Timothy, who were obviously very close to him. And he had the, the key responsibility of taking this letter back to the Colossians, and he also carried uh, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus and the letter to Philemon. So this is a very trustworthy brother, a key member of the team, and then he says that he's going to do two things when he's on site there. Number one, he's going to tell them uh, about his activities and also that he may encourage their hearts. Now, one thing that we just kind of need to think about here is even though Tychicus didn't go on and write another book of the Bible or whatever, he was a key member of the team. And we need to remember that for ourselves. 
Because sometimes we can get into this type of thinking, well, hey, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a community group leader, I'm just a Christian, just doing my thing, I don't really have anything to contribute. And that is certainly not the case. And almost all of these people that he's going to point out today, they reinforce that same idea, that even small things, when done in the name of Jesus, can have a big impact. And so think about that as you go about your life this week, as you're cooking Thanksgiving dinner, as you are seeking to reach out to those family members that you might not see at other points of the year. You are part of a missionary team. We're with you. We're for you. We're going to pray specifically for those opportunities at the end of the service. And even the small things that you do this week in the name of Jesus can have a huge impact. Now, speaking of that, let's look on here in verse 9. Because he mentions another man named Onesimus. And here he calls him our faithful and beloved brother. So similar as well. And this guy was actually from Colossae itself, where Paul was writing back to. And it seems that Paul had led him to Christ while he was in Rome. And now he had sent him back uh, to uh, his home city. And you also may recall from the book of the uh, Philemon that he was a runaway slave that was set to return to his master. And that's of particular interest because uh, at one point, uh, Onesimus even describes himself over in Philemon's 11 that he was useless. So he was uh, not the gra- a great guy before he met Jesus. He wasn't apparently a very good worker. He was ungrateful, so on and so forth. He had stolen from Philemon, you find out from the story. And then here God gets a hold of him through the Lord Jesus. And now this man has been placed on the gospel team. He's gone from being ungrateful to being grateful for Jesus. He's gone from being useless to being useful to Paul and now the rest of the kingdom. But I think with both of these guys, it's important to think about the way that Paul talked about them. Look back in your text at what he says there. Faithful and beloved brother. And what did he say about Tychicus? He said, beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. And when you take those things together, I think it leads us to our second principle, and that is that all of us are developing some kind of reputation. All of us are developing some kind of reputation. And that happens by the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, and we all have some kind of word on the street about us. And clearly, we want to be this kind of person. We want to be this kind of Christian, somebody that would be spoken of not as perfect, but as faithful and as someone that cares about the gospel. And so I think the hard question we need to ask ourselves here would be something like this. If we came and we engaged your coworkers and we said, hey, we want to do a little 360 here and find out what's the word on the street about this person as a worker? as a Christian, as someone that engages other people in the office? What is their reputation? What would be said about any of us? And so I think as we see their positive example, we get to do a little self-reflection of our own example, and surely this points us to the example of the Lord Jesus. Because even though the religious establishment hated him, what was really true of Jesus? He was the kindest, he was the strongest, he was the wisest, he was the only perfect man who ever lived. 
And anyone who's going to be saved today is saved because of the reputation and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. So as we see these fumbles and foibles and failures in our own reputation that we want to see moving in the right direction, let them draw us toward Jesus and His perfection counted on our account. You know, the gospel frees us to be able to fully own our own failures and put them on Christ. Martin Luther talked about that. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Isn't that wonderful news? That our failures have been covered if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that if is important. Because most of us think that our failures get covered by trying to do some more good on top of the bad. But that's not how it works in God's economy. The only way we can be made right with God is through taking responsibilities for those failures and saying, Lord, I am a sinner but I believe you have made a way of salvation for me. I want to take this sin. I want to place it on Christ. I want to believe that his perfect life and his substitute's death was enough for those failures. And Lord, I want to ask you to save me. I want to ask you to change me. I want to ask you to give me a new heart. And friends, he will do it. He will save us. And all of these people that Paul is talking about today, they all had that moment in their lives. They all had to come to the place where they realized they could not save themselves and only Jesus could save them. But they did. And he used them from that point on. Let's keep going here. Look at verse 10. It says, there's also a man named Aristarchus. Paul described him as his fellow prisoner. He was a native of Thessalonica, one of Paul's companions who was seized by a rioting mob. That was a good day. In Acts chapter 19... He also accompanied Paul on his trip to Jerusalem and his voyage to Rome in Acts 27. So again, a faithful brother and now probably chained up next to him or close to him. But then he also mentions here another man, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And you have heard of him, whether you realize it or not. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. But there's also a very interesting backstory between Paul and Mark. And so this phrase, when he says here, welcome him, if he, or if he comes to you, welcome him, there's a lot of redemption and restoration between those words that we may not recognize. Because we don't know exactly what happened, but we know there was a significant rift between Paul and Barnabas over Mark, or as we know him as, as John Mark. Because in Acts 12, Mark goes with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, but somehow, by Acts 13, Mark has bailed out on the trip for unknown reasons. But somehow, between then and the writing of this letter, fences have been mended, and we see that good news has broken out in their relationship. And that gives us another principle here. And that is that our God is a God of second chances. And let me apply this for us in a few different ways. First of all, 
Some of us who are here today, when I was talking about Jesus and how you could know him earlier, one of the things that often comes up in our minds is, well, that sounds great, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know who I was. Friends, if God can mend this relationship, if God can save this Paul, who at one point was killing Christians before he got into the business of helping make Christians, friends, he can save you. If God gave Paul a second chance, he will give you a second chance. If John, Mark, and, and, and Paul were able to patch it up, there's hope for what's happening in your life because this is who God is. And quite frankly, that's all of our story, isn't it? Because every one of us was born in sin and then we made a mess on top of it. All of us came before Jesus the same way in desperate need of redemption with nothing to offer him in return but our faith and our lives. And God saved us through Jesus. So you need to know there is no one in this room that is beyond redemption. Now, when it comes to applying this, once we've met Jesus here, I think this relational example serves us in this way. Because there are some things that happen to us in life, particularly within the context of family, actually. So it's poignant that we're talking about this, Thanksgiving, so on and so forth, that it is not easy to forgive other people. Whatever happened here between Paul and Mark, it would have not been easy for him to, to work through that and then say, welcome Mark when he comes. But he did it. And he did it through the supernatural power of the Spirit. And, and one of the things I've come across over the years is forgiveness shows forth the power of the gospel in a unique and profound way that many other things do not. And I think that squares right in line with Ephesians 4.32 that says this, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So the basis of our forgiveness of other people is that we ourselves have been forgiven. Now, does that mean that, that everything has to be exactly the same and, and the relationship is like nothing ever happened? Well, that doesn't always happen in this life. All of us have stories like that. But the notion of forgiving is not optional for us because we need to embrace the forgiveness that God has given us and then out of that, forgive others. Somehow, Paul did that for Mark. And it was through the power of God at work within his life. So indeed, God is a God of second chances. Now, let's look at verse 11. <clears throat> and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Now, let's work backwards on this. There's good news and bad news in verse 11. The good news is, these people that he's talking, uh, uh, or the, the, the people that he's talking about here have been a comfort to him. So even in the, the depth of his despair, he was not completely comfortless. But the bad news here is that these three that are, he was referring to, this, this guy and the, the, the previous couple, they are the only Jews that have responded to his message and been a help to him. 
And I think all of us can relate to some degree of the type of alienation and the type of particular pain that this can cause you. Because we want to think, man, this is what we believe. Look what God's doing in my life. I want all the people closest to me. They're going to get it. They're going to embrace it. But here's the sad truth, and it's the next principle. That sometimes the gospel is not embraced by those closest to us. And sometimes this time of year reminds us of that. But let me give you a little bit of encouragement in the midst of that. This is not new. We are not the first people to experience this. Think about Jesus himself. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. That's Mark 6, 4. So when you think about Jesus, he knows what it feels like for the closest people around him, in his case, to think he was crazy at one point. That, that his family is so concerned about him once he starts teaching and doing miracles that they go and they pull him out of his ministry situation because they think that he's become a few sandwiches short of a picnic. So this notion of people close to us not getting it, it's not new. And you think about a lot of the people in the Old Testament that God used. They were often ostracized, overlooked, misunderstood. They had hard lives. You think through the, the New Testament. You use Paul's example right here. These were the only three people of the circumcision that were working with him for the kingdom of God. So we're not alone in that. But let me also give you some further encouragement here from Jesus himself in Luke 18, 29 and 30. He said, and, I said to, and, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So even if your own family disowns you because of faith in Jesus, you have another family that will not. And that family is the church. And the truest thing about us collectively is that we really are brothers and sisters. Now, do, do local churches always get along? They don't. Do people always behave the way that they should? They don't. But one day, there's going to be a day where we all gather around God's proverbial table. And it's going to be the greatest Thanksgiving feast that you've ever seen. And I don't know if there'll be turkey and cranberry sauce there. I don't know what they're going to have for sure. But I know this, that all the wrongs in this world will be made right. And we will experience a type of fellowship and intimacy and communion with God that is not even possible in this world because of the darkening effect of our sin. And I also know that the community and the gospel family nature that we can and do experience here at Refuge is a pointer and a foretaste to that which is coming. So even if those close to you on this earth reject you because of the gospel, this gospel family will not. We embrace one another because of the gospel. 
And when we do, you get to see things like Paul saw right here in verse 12. Look at this. He talks about another guy. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And I think Epaphras is a good example for us, both in prayer and in hard work. Look at how he is described here. It says, he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's the consistent persistency that we saw last week. That he is praying without ceasing for them. And then look what he's praying for here. He said that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And I think that specificity is helpful to us there. Because most of us, we're okay at praying for, hey, we need more money, or this one's sick, or there's trouble at work. Yes and amen. We need to pray for all those things. But look at the depth in which he is praying here, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, that's a prayer that'll get something done, that we are praying for one another, that we would grow that we would be, in Old Testament language, like oaks of righteousness planted by the river. That we would be unshaken and unmoved by all of the chaos in the culture and committed to knowing and growing in Jesus. That's the kind of prayer we need to be praying for one another. And then on top of that, we see the work ethic that this guy had. Look at verse 13. It says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. And that word there, Greek word for worked hard, means heavy toil to the point of pain. So this guy wasn't just mailing it in. He was out there struggling for them. And so I think that kind of ethos, that's what we need to be about as Christians. We need to be that way for our church, for the people in our family, for those in our workplace, that we are setting this kind of example and we're praying this kind of prayer and we're working in this kind of way, doing what Paul said just a few weeks ago in Colossians 3.23, that we are working as unto the Lord and not unto men. So Epaphras is a good example for us. But again, we can't use the word example and not think about the example of Jesus. Because think about what he prayed for us, that we would be unified. That the world would be able to look at our unity and see that we belong to God. That right now, in this very moment, even while we're listening and I'm teaching, Jesus is praying and interceding for us in such a way that the Spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and we would make much of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is the true and better Epaphras praying for us now. And what about the work that Jesus did? I mean, you can't say the word work and not think about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in every way and in every moment, he was perfect, and then he died in the way that only he could and then gloriously rose again to finish the work and do everything that was needed for us to be saved and be friends with God. Jesus is the true and better Epaphras in his work as well. Now there's a couple more things that we need to point out for the passage here as well. And sadly, not all this is good news. 
Look at verse 14. It says, Lug, uh, excuse me, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. You know who Luke is, wrote a gospel, one of Paul's most trusted companions. But this man Demas here, even though we're not told here, we find out later that he deserts Paul and he deserts the mission. And we don't know if he ever came back or not. But it says this in another place in Scripture, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So as a cautionary tale from the life of Demas, we must be very careful to not fall in love with this present world. And friends, we've talked about this many, many times. We live in a dangerous area because it's well-resourced. It's nice. Most of us do not go to bed and wonder, is the heat going to be on tomorrow? Or we're going to have food at the end of the week. And in all of the physical beauty of this area, we can be lulled into thinking that this is as good as it gets. But let me give you some good news. Franklin is great, but heaven is greater. Williamson County is a wonderful place to be, but the kingdom of God is the only place to be. And as we live and move and have our being in this area, let's be truly thankful. But let's also realize that there's better coming. And we need not fall in love with the opulence of this world and forget about the truthfulness of the world that is to come. Let's hold that tension to leverage what we've been given here, to be faithful and good stewards with what we've been given here. But let's remember that this world is passing away, and the world that is to come, we can't even hardly describe it. So let's be more like Luke and not like Demas. Now, the final couple of verses here I want to take together. Look at this, verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And it's interesting here that he's talking about this church in her house. Because again, what do we think in our day? Well, a church has to be a building. Well, I think we've kind of figured that out because here we are having church in a school cafeteria. But it is important to remember that church is a group of people. It is not simply a place. And little sprinkled texts like this remind us of that. Kind of like what we see in verse 16 here. And when, the letter has, when this letter has been read among you, so he's talking about this, this whole letter of Colossians, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. So even back then... The public reading of Scripture has always been important. And that's why, as a church, we gather around the text every week. The Bible is God speaking to us. And again, passages like, passages like this just show the sprinkling of just how important it is that we read this together and we read it regularly. Last couple of verses here. And I say to Archippus... See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I think that's such a good reminder that like Archippus, the Lord has given us all ministries that we are to fulfill. 
Now, my ministry is pretty obvious. Preach and teach the Bible, try to love the people, point people to Jesus, and then the other things that I do. But every one of us is called to ministry in some way. Now, it may not be specifically crystallized, kind of like mine is, but if you have a body, which it looks like everyone does, you have a ministry. You have a sphere of influence. In fact, you have multiple spheres of influence. You have a home. You either have children and a spouse, perhaps, or you have roommates. There are people around you that you are to speak the gospel to, that, that you love in the name of Christ. You have a job. You have activities in which you function with your kids and your family, so on and so forth. And we have a ministry of not just proclaiming the gospel, but modeling the gospel in all those ways. And then for some, God really kind of focuses it down into more specific things. And the question is that I would like to ask here is, do you know what God has called and is calling you to do in this season of your life? Because if you don't, we can help. Now, we don't have, you know, the playbook where you come and sit and we go, okay, that's it. You have these qualities, boom, you're doing this. But God has given us all gifts, and He has given us talents, and He has given us opportunity providentially to do certain ministries in certain seasons. And whatever it is that God has called you to in this season, we want to help you lean into that, and we want to encourage you, and we want to help you experience the type of fullness that He's been talking about throughout this entire letter. We want to help you experience that in your life. So it's an open invitation Talk to us. Let us help you sort it out. Now, last thing I want to say here comes from verse 18. And it says this. It says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Friends, what Paul points out to us here, look at that phrase, remember my chains. There's a sadness there. But there's a glory there. And we must be careful to not forget those suffering for the gospel. I mean, right now, at this moment in history, we do take some flack for what we believe, and we've been more marginalized now than we ever have been. But it's not like the way it is in other countries around the world. So there's trouble here, but there's worse trouble in other parts of the world. And I think as Paul says this morning to the Colossians, remember my change, he says to us here at Refuge, remember the suffering of those around the world. And one of the things that I've found helpful over the years that kind of keeps this on my radar is a a ministry called the Voice of the Martyrs. They put out a multiplicity of publications and emails and so on and so forth. Their their ministry, just like we were talking about here in verse 17, their ministry is to keep this in front of the church. And so I don't know that, that it would be necessary for you to subscribe to their email or their magazine or whatever, but goodness, it has been a help. And so my encouragement would be whatever you need to do, to keep the suffering of Christians around the world on your radar so that you might pray for them and serve them and so on, I would encourage you toward it. Because just as they needed to remember Paul's chains, we need to remember the chains of those who are suffering today. Now, in closing, when we talk about suffering, 
I don't think we could talk about suffering without thinking about the suffering that the Lord Jesus endured on our behalf. We need to remember His chains, so to speak. We need to remember all of the derision that He endured. And you know, every week we have the opportunity to do that through communion. But we also have the opportunity to remind ourselves that those chains were not the last word for Paul, they were not the last word for Jesus, and they are not the last word for us. That those chains have also been broken because of the suffering and because of the victory of Jesus in the resurrection. See, Paul's suffering had meaning because of the suffering and the victory of Jesus. His chains had meaning because of the chain-breaking power of Jesus Christ. The one who gave us the ministries to fulfill. The one who gently reminds us to be in love with him and his kingdom and not with this world that is passing away. The one to whom Epaphras points as an example of prayer and hard work. The one who knows personally what it was like to be surrounded by people who didn't get the gospel. The one who gives the second chances, the one who had the ultimate reputation, the one who is calling us to be his teammate on what is ultimately his mission. That's why Paul was in chains. It wasn't for an idea, it was for a person. The God-man, Jesus Christ. So friends, whatever you face today, whatever you face This week, the person of Jesus Christ, if you are in him, is with you and for you. He is an available resource to help you this week. And when we get that, Thanksgiving becomes not just a day on Thursday, but a way of life. And we're constantly reminded of the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's go to him now and say thank you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the ministry of Paul. But we thank you for the ministry of all these other brothers that we don't hear much about. We thank you that they were faithful in their ministries. May we be faithful in ours. Lord, we're also thankful for communion. Thankful that it reminds us of your suffering, but it also points to your great glory and victorious resurrection. May it speak to us today in such a way that it wells up new gratitude within us. We're thankful for this time that we have together in Jesus' mighty name.